Welcome, I'm Josh. And I'm Seth. Our goal is to bring awareness and insight to sustainable whitewater principles and practices through stories and experiences shared by you. On today's episode, Seth and I converse with a fellow paddler and swiftwater rescue instructor, Golder Goldstein. We'll discuss a learning incident as well as debunk several whitewater myths. Brace yourself. Again, I want to preface by saying that we are recording over Zoom for today's episode to promote safe social distancing, so please forgive any lack in audio quality. So, Golder, if you could give us a little bit of introduction to yourself and your background in whitewater. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I uh, started paddling as an adult. Um, I was on a road trip through the country and went to visit some friends who were training as raft guides on the new in the Gali and happened to roll into town on a, uh, after a big storm event had hit the East coast and got on the lower Gali at something like 12,000 CFS and just completely loved it and, um, vowed to leave and go finish cooking school and, and be back, uh, to raft guide the next summer. Um, and that's, that's really how I got into, into whitewater paddling as an adult. And, what a great way to get into your first boating experience. Uh, a lower golly trip at 12,000 CFS. That's great. Golder, I just had a curiosity. Uh, how old were you at that point? And, and what boat were you paddling at that point? Um, I was probably about 22 at that point. And I was in, we were probably in, uh, you know, 14 foot high side rafts with uh, a bunch of beginner guides who were, um, you know, I think it was a boat full of people that were pretty puckered. <laughs> awesome that's incredible and uh where are you at now um well since then i i started open boating when i was up there i had a, a roommate who got me into into um open canoeing and i started in an old sun bleached um dagger encore it was kind of pink color and i swam out of that on everything in the central west virginia area um, and chased it down a lot of a lot of white water on a very steep learning curve um, and paddled open canoes for a long time, uh, paddled some C1s as well, closed deck canoes, and now I kayak as well, and um, pretty much paddle anything that floats. Very cool. So, and you are living in Asheville right now, correct? Correct. I've been here for about 12 years, and uh, paddling was part of what brought me here, and I just really moved here, fell in love with the area and the the paddling and the fact that you know year round there's great paddling to be had and all all types of um you know larger volume rivers to tiny steep micro creeks just um, fell in love with the area and and just continue to fall in love with paddling absolutely and just out of curiosity what style or kind of boating do you think you do most often um well, most often, given you know, given um, weather conditions that that uh, being favorable, I I really like technical steep creaking and uh, paddling an open canoe down steep creeks for a while. I got you know to favor low low water conditions, and as as uh, as I've gotten more and more experience over the years, I've started to um, 
be a little more willing to take on higher flow states. But I, I do like um, technical steep creaking, micro creaking. I, uh, I tried open boating one time and uh, popped my left shoulder out of socket doing a cross bow on a ferry and uh, have not tried it since. It's very, very challenging of a style. For yeah, sure. that is one thing I would say at the Green Race 2020. I think there was, what, two or three open boaters uh, in the race. And I just I think it's so incredible to see them see them coming down through the, the gorge there. Yeah, it's so impressive. Uh, and, uh, if you would kind of just tell us a little bit about what you do for a living, what's your career like? Um, I wear a, a number of hats for professionally. The main hat I wear is as a human potential coach. So it's a little bit of life coaching, a little bit of mental health coaching, um, working with folks around, around values and purpose and helping people close the gap between, um, where they are and where they'd like to be in their lives. Um, and my, one of my side gigs, maybe my favorite side gig, is I also teach Swiftwater Rescue in the area around the Southeast. Um, I'm a dual certified with the American Canoe Association and ITRA, the International Technical Rescue Association, uh, to teach Swiftwater. And I do small groups and custom instruction. And one of the things I really love is um, teaching crews, like someone will get together their paddling crew and will bring their, their group together and I'll do um, custom instruction for you know, somebody's paddling crew. And um, I was lucky enough to get really good instruction and, and learn from Jim Coffey, one of the uh, kind of world-renowned Swiftwater uh, instructor trainers, and just, you know, feel so fortunate to have learned those skills from him and combined with, you know, 15 years of paddling on the river recreationally and professionally, and just uh, really enjoy sharing those skills with other folks because, um, you know, there's better ways to learn them than, than firsthand some of those skills and learning them from carnage and beatdowns is a little overrated in my book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so just out of curiosity, how long have you been teaching Swiftwater Rescue? Um, I trained uh, last fall. So this year has been my, my first year of, uh, you know, being a certified instructor. Um, I've been kind of informally instructing just friends and and folks on the river for a long time, whether it's, um, you know, I've always enjoyed taking people down new creeks and new runs and just sharing the skills I had. So um, this is my first year doing it professionally. And uh, real quickly, I actually had a conversation recently with one of my friends about uh, Switchwater Rescue. And, you know, it's not necessarily the most available um, resource. You, you definitely can uh, find classes nearby, but obviously they, uh, they do cost money and you do have to go and uh, sometimes take time off of work to go and uh, do those classes. How do you feel about them being for beginners or do you feel like they're, do you feel like beginners should maybe take a swift order issue course or who do you feel like that's for really? Um, I, I love that question. It's a, it's a great question. I think Swiftwater rescues for everybody. Um, I think there's a lot of people who regard it for, somebody else beginners are kind of intimidated and they think it's just for um you know the class five nar puppies and a lot of the class five nar puppies don't want to take a day off of of uh you know shredding the brown to build up their skills uh, but i i think it's for everybody and part of what i like doing custom instruction in small groups is uh, when we're able to get a a group who has comparable skills together um, we can adjust the learning so that it it really fits the group um, because, you know, whether we're teaching like advanced rigging 
and skills that might be really helpful on a walled-in gorge, um, or whether we're teaching the basics of hydrology, um, there's just a lot to be gained. So I, I think one of the reasons swift water rescues for everybody is I don't just teach how to respond in a rescue, but we teach how to prevent rescue, how to prevent the need for a rescue in the first place. So good risk assessment and um, you know what what risk management and, and good decision making can look like, you know, all the way from in the parking lot meetup in the morning to, you know, um, to deciding what we run and how we run it, how we set safety, how we look out for our group. So just out of curiosity, would you say it would be best to take a swift water rescue course as a beginner, uh, you know, before you ever start boating um, or a course you maybe take um, two or three times over the course of your entire paddling career? Um, definitely, I think multiple times over the paddling career. The, the skill set's very perishable. If, if you learn a Z-drag in June and don't practice it at all, um, when you need it in October, you may or may not be able to set it up safely and swiftly and in a time efficient manner. Um, so never mind the fact that, you know, a year or two could go by before you need some of the skills. Um, it's just like anything. If we, um, it would be like if you just practiced your role a whole, bu a whole bunch when you were a beginner kayaker and then never practice it at all, it's not going to be there when you need it. Um, and the, the, a lot of the rescue skills are pretty, pretty well-founded, but there continue to be improvements in the techniques. So um, learning them, practicing them is the best way to stay super sharp. I firmly believe that it's important to have your rescue skill set match your paddling skill set. To be a class five boater with class two plus rescue skills is just, it's a time bomb. And yeah, I was actually talking to the same friend about the balance between the technical switch water rescue courses and the practicing on your own. It's a huge deal. Uh, you know, we were talking about how effective it is to just go and throw a rope bag at a tree. Um, because, you know, if you never practice, like you said, if you learn a rope bag, learn how to throw a rope bag, wait a couple months, try to throw it again, it's probably not going to be the best. Um, you know, and throwing coils, things like that are just different. They take different skills and a lot of a lot of practice. So yeah, I would say throwing a rope is a great example of what someone can do in their free time. Gold, Golder, what are some other practical examples someone could practice you know, their swift water rescue skills? Um, you know, a rainy day at home or just a, a, an hour they have off in the middle of the day. Yeah, great question. Um, I love that, and I love the the idea to practice throwing your throw rope. It's one of the most basic core foundational skills. Um, we have a four or five-year-old who lives next door. And when we come home from paddling, when we're hanging up our gear to dry, you know, we'll send him running down the driveway and we'll try to hit a moving target. And it's fun for everybody. Um, and it keeps the rope from, you know, being all crusted up and dried into a weird kinked up mess. Um, and, you know, if, if you've got time to paddle, you've got time to hang up your gear, you've probably got time to practice a rope throw. Um, so I think the, the knots are really important as well. Uh, there's a handful of knots um, that, you know, we don't need a ton of knots as paddlers, but there's a solid handful that can be really helpful to have. And really the way I describe it in class is, is you know, any of us should be able to tie any knot that we need in the dark in a cold shower. <laughs> because sometimes when things go wrong on the river, it's kind of like being in the dark in a cold shower. So if we have the muscle memory where we can tie a bowline, we can tie a figure eight, follow through, we can tie an alpine butterfly, um, then we know it's there when we need it. 
you know, so I sometimes I'll put on a movie that I've seen a bunch of times and don't really need to watch. And I've got a, you know, a length of throw rope that we cut off of a bag that was stuck in the river. And, you know, once a month, I try to practice my knots just to refresh them. And so would you say those are three knots that every boater should know? Um, yeah, or is there it's pretty accessible. I mean, there's a few others, but that's a really great starting place. Um, there's a couple of variations of the figure eight figure eight on a bite, figure eight follow through, clove hitch is really usable, um, a water knot for webbing. Um, That's great. I think you know, on the topic of ropes, I think there is a lot of discussion on you know, how many ropes should one person carry, um, what, what length, what a person should carry. Do you have any advice regarding you know, just simple rope and rope bag and rope material uh, per person? Um, yeah, great question. I, I think to some extent, it depends on what you're running. It depends on the group. Um, and there's some personal preference as well. I personally um, carry at least one rope and sometimes two. Um, basically, I think the important things about a rope are having enough rope length to do what you need it to do. So while I can't throw a 75 foot throw rope all the way to its length. I know there's enough rope there to set up a really efficient mechanical advantage system. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I don't often wanna like take that big chunky rope out of my boat and carry it if I'm setting safety. So I might also wear a shorter waist belt or one of those um, uh, Astral makes some nice little ropes that fit in the chest pocket of a PFD. Um, so it sometimes makes sense to have have multiple ropes. Um, if, if you're running a big river and you only have a 40 foot tiny rope in your, in your kit, then um, it doesn't give you a lot of versatility. So yeah, and absolutely. And I, and in reference to our first podcast and my swim on the Rocky broad, another, another example was my rope was in my boat and I didn't have, I, my boat was nowhere to be found. Um, so I, I think in that's another great point of, of carrying a, a smaller, a more compact rope on your person um, or on a hip belt is, is a great piece of advice because uh, you can find yourself needing a rope, but your rope is, is in your boat, which you don't have access to. Mm -hmm. And uh, moving forward, if you could go ahead and share uh, your experience with us uh, and kind of maybe just a couple learning points that you got from this experience. Yeah, that was, um, y'all had asked me to kind of bring a, a scenario, a real life scenario. Um, and I'm, there's a uh, story that I use a lot in, as a teaching point, teaching story um, in my swift water classes. Um, and I'd be happy to kind of bring that and we can break down kind of how things went and, and um, you know, the takeaways from it. Um, we were on the uh, Greenbrier River in uh, East Tennessee in the wintertime. Uh, and our group, there was probably four or five of us came up, we came around a corner and we saw a guy stranded on a rock in the middle of the river. And uh, before we could even got very close to him, we could tell he was not having a good day. Um, he looked cold, he looked stressed out, his eyeballs were as big as saucers. Um, he, was, he, was, he was not stoked, he was not doing great. So Golder, um, just for some context, what was the time of year and the, and the weather? It was, event. yeah, it was, uh, it was winter time. It was definitely dry suit season. Um, it was pretty cold. It's a, uh, often a shady gorge in the, the Greenbrier. Um, 
so it was definitely a day where where expo exposure, hypothermia, um, and the elements were uh, prime concern. And uh, so when we when we saw this this guy on the rock, you know, we could pretty quickly tell like he was cold, you know, and uh, and he was stressed and freaked out. Um, and I was in the happened to be in the front of the group at that time. And the first thing I did was to catch an eddy upstream of him um, on River Right. And um, from there, I saw I had a good view of the situation. I saw him on the rock. I saw his buddies were on river left, which is also the um, side of the river where the road is. Um, and they didn't seem to have a lot in the works in terms of uh, rescue in the works. Um, and as I stopped on river right um, and pulled my boat up on shore and got out, um, I looked upstream and tried to make eye contact with my crew and see what they were doing. And um, I saw that the, the next two people in my group caught eddies just upstream of me. And then the uh, fourth member of my group, he caught an eddy on river left on the opposite side of the river, um, just upstream of the whole situation. Um, so um, all of which would prove as the, as the rescue kind of progressed to be super helpful to the situation. So, you know, one of the, there's a lot of core skills that we practice in swift water and um, wading and swimming are two of them. Um, so I was able to look at the situation and assess from where I was to where this guy was stuck. And because I practice a lot of wading and swimming, I felt like I could get to him. And um, so the, the first thing I did was communicate with my group that I thought I could get to that rock safely. And my group um, moved into um, setting safety for me. So one of the members of my group went downstream and was ready with a throw rope in case I uh, got swept away from the swim or um, had any kind of issues like that. And somebody stayed kind of upstream to be able to um, give us options in terms of what we needed when we got there. So being able to get to that rock, I was able to talk to this person, find out how he was doing, because up until that point over the noise and everything, I didn't know if he was injured or how he had gotten there or what his, his status was. So um, I got there and was able to find out he was not injured. He was cold. Um, he was scared because he knew there was an undercut downstream somewhere on the right side. So he was, he was scared about being in the water and getting swept towards the undercut. And um, what we were able to do was he and I were able to um, wade back by wading as a team um, the way that I had come to access him. So we were able to get towards the uh, river right-hand side. And the whole time we were wading, we had safety downstream. We had someone waiting in the eddy to help us um, sort of arrive and to kind of catch us when we got there. So how um, so long... First how far was the distance you guys you had to wade to him and you guys had to wade collectively to the to river right shore um i would say about 15 feet but it was kind of in the you know the rock he was on kind of split the central channel of the of the river so it was um you know a good bit of current gradient there but as with many of the runs in the in the smokies it wasn't particularly deep but the water was pretty swift um so we we were able to feel um, good about doing that, that move because, you know, the whole time that we're going through this situation, 
the way I assess risk is, um, you know, the technical term for it's the acceptable level of risk method. I just call it, can I, should I? I look at a situation and go, can I do this? And should I do this? And if the answer is yes to both of those, then, you know, we proceed with going ahead. So I look at this, can, can we do this Wade? Should we do this Wade together? Well, having made it as one person, I felt even more confident about the two of us wading back together. And I felt like we should because we had safety downstream. Um, so we were, we were protected to do so. Um, so when we, we got back to River Wright, um, he was in a better situation. He wasn't stranded on a rock in the middle of the river, but he was still you know, stuck on the wrong side of the river. His boat was on river left. His buddies had pulled it shore below the rapid. Um, the road was river left. So having a means of egress was on river left. So he was still kind of stranded. Um, but this is where having a really experienced cohesive group came into play because I was able to look up, we looked upstream and the member of our group who was running sweep, who had taken a position on river left, he was out of his boat and he had just taken, you know, a leadership role by looking at the situation and anticipating what we would need next. Yeah. So about the time we figured out, okay, great. He's out of the middle of the river, but we still need to get him to river left. Um, our friend was set up um, on a rock sticking out into the current with his throw rope, ready to set us up to pendulum the person who had been stuck uh, on a nice, swift, easy pendulum. And by that, I mean, he was able to throw the rope to this person and they were able to hold onto the rope and jump into the river and let the current deliver him to river left. So what would be an example of when, you know, if he's stuck in the middle of the river, uh, at what point would it be better to throw him a rope and, and pendulum into an eddy versus you wading to him? Kind of what would be two, you know, different scenarios when you would want, you know, someone would want to do one or the other? So there's, um, there's so many factors and each situation is different. And that's, that's a great question because, you know, could we have thrown him a rope and then just tried to bring him in? Um, yeah, we could have tried it. At that point, you know, he appeared to be in, in like a state of distress. He appeared to be stressed out. And so, you know, we didn't know how he was gonna respond to the rope. Um, also with where he was situated, if, you know, being on the rope had moved him downstream, it wouldn't have been very pleasant. There was a lot of like shallow manky rocks that we, he would have gotten bounced off of and potentially gotten beat up as we tried to bring him into shore. So um, waiting allowed us to move actually upstream as we threw deeper water than if he had, we had tried to just bring him in through a throw rope. It might've been um, a bit of a beating along the way. So, you know, we, we look at those and we can look at the same, can I, should I? So yes, we can throw him a rope. Um, should we do that? Well, it, you know, it means he's got to be like fully in a capable spot to be able to deal with the situation on his own. And any of us, if we've been on a rock in the middle of the river and we're cold and wet, um, cold makes us really stupid. It makes our grip not good. It's hard to hold on to a rope. Um, and, you know, cold can put us into a, into a compromised state. So, you know, there's a lot of variables to... Um, to what we might try. Um, when I'm looking at different options and I'm considering what I can do and what I should do, I look at what's the most likely to quickly resolve the situation safely. That's great. And I think there's you know, a couple things to 
discuss, you know, furthermore, um, you know, in the wintertime in the Rockies, um, you know, you get him to shore, as you said, you know, the Greenbrier, there is a road nearby, um, but there's a lot of runs in the Southeast and all over the country and all over the world um, that you, you can't get to a road. Um, so, so what are some preventable steps you know, we uh, as a paddling community can, can take uh, to, to continue to, to stay warm or to prevent um, hyperthermia along the riverbank? Um, you know, is, was, that a, was that a threat that day um, on the Greenbrier? Well, you know, the main, the main determinant of if it's a threat on that day is sort of how long he sat out there, you know, how long it would have been till he figured a way off of there himself or his crew did, or another group came along to help. Um, you know, time is, you know, that, that sort of intersection point of time and temperature is what determines our, the effects of hypothermia. Um, you know, taking into account weather and water conditions and water temperature is, is a really important part of just good decision-making. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of friends that don't like to push it really hard in terms of challenging themselves um, in really cold conditions um, because they know that with a whole bunch of layers on and a, and a dry suit, um, if there is a, the margin of error just feels thinner for them. So it's maybe a little harder to paddle in all the bulky layers or um, maybe if you do make mistakes, if you do have a swim, it can, it can be more um, dangerous. It can be more problematic. So um, I think having, I think having good self-awareness and good decision-making about what runs we put on and in what conditions is a, you know, an important part of, of, you know, paddling or really any outdoor adventure sport. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big factor. Um, you know, he mentioned hypothermia and there's a big factor of the real risk versus perceived risk, obviously. And so in that situation that, uh, the guy stranded on the rock might've been, you know, perceiving there was some serious, serious risks of undercuts. And obviously it's all situational. I don't know. I haven't been on the Greenbrier. I don't know where that undercut is, but you know, the real risk versus the perceived risk in often scenarios, they are wildly different. Um, he could be perceiving that he's going to float downstream right into a sieve or an undercut. And that could be his perceived risk. That's what he's really most afraid of. While in reality, um, you know, a scraped knee or, getting too cold could be the real risk. And I think that's kind of where the self-awareness that you were talking about comes from. Yeah, absolutely. We're always dealing with that, that um, sort of the distance between perceived risk and real risk. Mm -hmm. And the more stressed we are, the harder it is to make that distinction. And things like cold, things like, um, like a scary swim or a sketchy swim, um, or even a swim that's perceived as scary or sketchy, can really affect our decision-making. So, um, you know, often in, in situations, there can be a bit of a spiral where one mistake leads to another or mm -hmm. one mistake compromises um, our decision-making or a judgment, which leads to, again, another mistake and so on. So paddling in, in, in the wintertime, would you say, you know, would you have any advice regarding, um, you know, carrying some sort of um, something in the dry bag uh, to, to warm someone up, you know, fire starter, um, a reflective blanket of sorts, um, something along the lines, you know, if, if, if it really hit the fan, you know, you guys were lost the boat um, in, in, a, in a really deep gorge, a long swim, 
Um, you know, is that something that's worth carrying in the extra weight in your dry bag? Um, and or what, what are your thoughts on that? For, um, yeah, great question. I think it depends on the nature of the run. So a roadside run where there's always cars running down and, and it, the river's never more than a couple hundred yards from the, from the road. Um, I, I think there's a, there's a reasonable argument for not carrying a dry bag full of um, emergency gear, especially if, you, if it's a two and a half mile run and you're gonna have a car at the top and a car at the bottom, then feasibly, you know, you're never more than a 20 minute jog away from a vehicle that you can bring to get someone in dry clothes, get someone warmed up, um, get someone some, you know, food and water to heat up. Mm -hmm. But on a longer run, on a run where there's, you know, you're in more, <clears throat> excuse me, more remote terrain, I think it absolutely makes sense to um, consider what equipment we carry, you know, what's in our dry bag. Um, on remote wilderness runs, you know, I think having some, some food, some calories, having a fire starting device of some sort. Um, things like a space blanket can be super helpful. Um, you know, all, all of that can be helpful. I, I think a headlamp with mm. batteries that actually are charged or actually <laughs> have some right life to them because I, I feel like half the time someone's like pulled out a headlamp to save the day when we were, um, you know, it was getting dark on us. The, you flick it on and it just does that death that death flicker and, uh, and the mood shifts real quickly when that happens. Um, so sometimes I will keep my batteries separate outside of the headlamp um, just so that it doesn't get turned on in the bag accidentally. Um, and one of the things I started to carry is I used to carry for many years, I carried like an extra poly pro shirt in the winter because I thought if someone gets cold, you know, you can take off your stuff and put a fresh dry layer on underneath it. And for like a decade, I never used it because when you offer it to someone, um, it means they have to take off everything they're wearing, their PFD, their helmet, and they have to like basically strip down to put on a new base layer, which is not real appealing. Um, so I stopped carrying that and I realized that in the same weight and for less space in a dry bag, you can carry a really compressible synthetic micro puff. And what that protects against is um, if someone gets my worst case scenario is something stops us from going downstream, whether it's an injury or an equipment problem, or we run out of daylight. And if you've got a really warm micro puff with a hood, you know, you can put that on over your dry suit. You can take the top of your dry suit off and it's almost like a sleeping bag for your torso. Um, and you can, you know, survive having to stop and wait for help. Um, whereas that polypro is not going to do a lot in that situation. And in the situation where someone was just cold enough to want polypro, really the best thing to do is, you know, as we say in wilderness medicine, feed them and beat them. So mm -hmm. get them moving, get some sugar in their bloodstream, get some water, some food in them and get them moving. Whether that's onshore doing jumping jacks or whether it's let's get in our boat and let's paddle downstream or even paddling upstream doing a hundred yards of attainment will really warm you up and get your boat moving. <laughs> and I think that's a great takeaway right there. You know, the fact that we should always be you know, questioning what we have, you know, what we're carrying, the gear we're carrying, um, you know, the, the purpose that it's serving. Um, and another great thing is in, in kayaking, not all things are always cut and dry. So I'm sure, Golder, you don't carry your micro puff in, you know, in the middle of the summer 
um, on, a, on a short run. So I think it, you know, everything is um, somewhat subjective to the day, the crew, and um, just the time of year. Mm -hmm. Totally. The, the thing I think that's important is to um, have what you need in your kit, in your available at the put-in, so that if plans change, if you meet some people and you end up on a different run because the conditions aren't what you expected, that you're able to, you know, throw that puffy in the dry bag, throw the extra equipment in um, so that you've got it if your day changes instead of, you know, you leave the house thinking it's going to be sun's out, guns out kind of day. And then, <laughs> you know, in the, in the mountains around here, it can very quickly turn into um, yep. it can look good in Asheville and you get up into Madison County and it's a hailstorm going on. I've, I've had that happen a number of times. So, um, you know, it's, it's good to have options available, um, if nowhere else in your vehicle, and then you can change, you, know, you can choose on the spot what's prudent to bring with you. Gosh, one of the worst paddling days I ever had was on the North Fork of the French Broad. It was, gosh, probably 65 uh, down in the foothills of the mountains. And as soon as we got up, there was already about six inches of snow on the ground. And by the time we were at the bottom, um, probably about two feet and just was not ready for it. I had like a t-shirt on under my dry suit, which just, it, it was okay, but pretty terrible. I swam twice. My boat got pinned. I just paddled terribly because I was cold. I couldn't feel my hands. It's just terrible. Those are the worst kind of days. Yeah, I think that's great practice, you know, on your way, you know, leaving your house to always carry extra layers um, just in case of, of things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, moving forward, uh, we kind of already addressed some of the swift water myths that we kind of want to talk about. We talked about, you know, who is uh, swift water rescue for? We talked about that a little bit. We talked about, you know, the risk prevention and avoidance versus just the all out rescue. And um, one that I kind of wanted to talk about was um, kind of this um, culture that's kind of going around kayaking. Um, I kind of want to address the different opinions for this word that we've been using, you know, beatering and, you know, beatering down a river. And, you know, I didn't know if you had any opinions on how that culture is affecting maybe beginners in kayaking and especially that safety aspect of it. Well, I, I wrote an article, as, as I mentioned before, last year that got a lot of all kinds of different responses uh, from positive to a bunch of flack. Um, so talking about it now on the, on the podcast, it might make me sound like I'm no fun to paddle with, but um, I, I think beatering's a little bit overrated um, and a little bit glorified. And, um, you know, it's, you know, we're all between swims. We all make mistakes. Uh, you know, I've certainly, I've certainly had mine, um, but it's, it's really easy to get hurt out there. And it's really easy to uh, not just get hurt, but have experiences that like change how fun it is to paddle. Um, you know, a bad swim, even if you're not hurt, might really um, change your level of enjoyment. It can bring just a lot of stress and anxiety to something that was fun last week. Um, so plus, you know, whitewater's a individual sport until something goes wrong. And then it very quickly becomes a team sport. Because mm. usually, you know, when something's gone wrong, we're relying on each other to sort out the situation. So, um, you know, if we're getting into situation, consistently getting into situations that, you know, need a lot of rescue, um, you know, there's a potential we're putting other people at risk. So yeah. I, I'm a really 
you know, big believer in logical progression. Mm-hmm. And I think like making it from the put into the takeout on a class four Creek does not make you a class four paddler mm-hmm. because to be honest, a lot of the driftwood makes it that far too. Um, but it's not because it has any particular skill or ability. So, you know, really make, I think it's important to make a distinction between, um, you know, getting down something and having the skill set to, um, you know, maybe move up a level in difficulty. And a lot of people I see going, oh, I ran class three plus, bring on class four and so on. Um, and that works fine because quite frankly, class five feels a lot like class three until something goes wrong. Mm. But um, if you don't really have that skill set, then, you know, it can be a lot harder to uh, respond to issues and, and even to have the knowledge base to prevent them. So I think one of the most well-known creeks in the Southeast is the Green River Narrows. And apart from the big three on the Green River Narrows um, is, is a class four, four plus uh, river. Um, so would you have any advice per someone you know, who consistently paddles the Narrows and, and will consider themselves a, a class four boater um, per you know, Narrows standard, but on a, on a, on a class four big water run or, or something of that nature, uh, they're, they're out of their element and out of their league. Um, how, does, how does that person continue their progression and continue their, um, yeah, the progression into further class four and even class five? Um, I think that, I think that the, you know, the whitewater grading scale is really limited. I think there's a big difference between, um, you know, class four rivers and class four creeks. They require a different skill set. Um, things happen at a different speed and a different pace. And also, you know, there's a big difference between the green at six inches on the stick and 16 inches on the stick. Mm-hmm. But it often all gets called class four, you know, whether it's a river, whether it's a creek, whether it's at a relatively high, medium or low uh, or flood stage. So I think it's important to be aware of the differences and, you know, running running something at low flow doesn't mean you're prepared for a different style of paddling or a different flow stage. Um, so I think that's something to, to really be aware of. And I think it's important to not just get down rapids, but be able to like catch the tricky eddies, to be able to do the hard moves, the, the hard peel outs, the, the high ferries, the uh, be able to, you know, if you're a little offline and get jangled up, be able to make plan B work as well as plan A, or maybe it's plan Q and a half if that's, that's what it's thrown your way. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. But you know, there's, there's, certainly something to be said for being able to deal when things get a little wonky. Um, and the other thing I look at is group dynamic. If, um, if you're paddling with a bunch of really great paddlers and you're the least experienced or least skilled person and they're looking out for you, um, it's something to be aware of because, um, you know, the way I look at it is like, what's the group look like today? Or, you know, if you're assessing your skill set, if there were four of you you know, if we cloned you with your current level of ability and your current level of skill, and it was just the four of y'all out on a river, you know, how would that situation look? Would you be able to scout and break things down and keep each other safe and, um, and figure out your way down the, the run? And, you know, it's always different. Do you have data? Does someone know the run? Um, or are you having to figure things out um, on a new creek or in a new area? So there's, there's a lot of considerations, but I think the whole like, oh, I ran that, it's class three, so I'm going to go this, 
different river and try that, you know, people, people can get it handed to them. That is, I have never thought about that cloning yourself thing. I'm definitely going to have to hold on to that. <laughs> that's a great way to think about it. Um, and, you know, one more thing that I've kind of noticed about maybe some of the more accomplished or competent paddlers that I've witnessed uh, over just the past couple of years uh, are people that really respect the rivers. Uh, and, you know, these, there's obviously going to be some differing opinions about everything that we've said so far, but um, I just have noticed that the more that I respect the river, the more fun I can even have, uh, you know, if I feel like going into a new river that I maybe haven't done before and I can't give it its full respect, I may want to wait a little bit longer. You know, I haven't done, you know, Josh has done the Rocky Broad, but that's a river that I look at from the road and I'm like, I don't think I can really comprehend what it's like to get down in that thing and, uh, you know, respect it to its full level. And I think that's kind of where the self-awareness comes from and, you know, just experience of knowing what I can do and, you know, can I and should I, that phrase you used earlier it's a big aspect of it yeah i mean you you can always put on you can always you know we can always put on the river but it doesn't mean we always should you know um there's just so many things that that affect that answer whether it's our experience or our group size or our group dynamic or our collective group experience or um you know so and so's hung over so and so didn't sleep well or had the flu last week and they're not at full strength. I mean, um, you know, I think it's important to take all of those into consideration. I mean, our, our rivers are constantly changing and uh, rapids change all the time, but for the most part, the rivers aren't going anywhere. So, That's right. um, you know, some days it's a great day to put on a certain section. Some days it's um, better to go find a micro Creek higher in the drainage. That's, you know, not overflowing its banks and, Sometimes everything's blown out and it's a good day to go bowling. That's right. That's right. Or go run the, uh, you know, a local class two at, at a really high water. Sure. If that's something <laughs> yeah. you're comfortable with and, and uh, you know, have the, have the skills and ability for, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, is there anything that you would uh, like to add or any advice you'd like to give from your experience uh, as we close things out? Uh, it was great chatting with y'all and uh, you know, I love talking about this stuff and um, you know, I hope folks feel encouraged to um, you know, consider learning more and practicing their skills and you know, folks are welcome to get in touch with me about uh, Swiftwater. You know, it's getting a little cold, but still happy to um, you know, offer instruction if folks are willing to brave the elements and also for the springtime. Um, and it's you know, one of my takeaways from that scenario that I mentioned before was that, um, you know, I, you know, from practicing swift water with my crew and knowing my crew, I felt like they really had my back to, um, you know, solve, solve problems together in the wilderness as a group and that we all had each other. So uh, I, I don't think you can o- overestimate the uh, value of, of practicing those skills with the people you're on the on the river with regularly and in the woods with regularly so it can be really great to have that um, shared vocabulary shared experience knowing um, who's good with knots and who's got other strengths and (laughs) on who's a great swimmer um, you know who's who's great with the throw rope and being able to work well as a team that way and I think that does also speak to behalf of just group cohesion Uh, spending 
days and days and you know months and months on the water with the, with the same group of people. Um, I think there's something to be said about that. I think there's uh, there's a beauty to that. Um, you know, there's a level of respect. Um, there's a level of trust that that comes with with paddling with the same group of guys or girls um, day after day. Um, so I think that would be also my advice to someone who's just starting out boating is, is, is trying to find, you know, a group of, of three or four guys or girls to, to progress with and, and to learn with and to, and to paddle with, um, you know, because as you as you continue to progress and into harder and harder rivers and different different elements, um, you know, that trust and that cohesion factor is really important on the river. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh, to the more maybe more experienced boaters is, you know, looking for that person that maybe needs someone uh, to uh, have them under their wing. Um, I, I can name off tons of people right now that I can accredit to many, many, many things that I've learned over the years and just having that openness to not only have that group cohesion, but be able to trust yourselves enough to take another less experienced mm -hmm. boater down is also something really important. That's great. Awesome. Well, Golder Goldstein, thank you so much for your time uh, on our second episode of the podcast and hopefully see you on the water soon. Yeah. yeah thanks, thanks for so having me. And yeah, hope to, hope to get out boating with y'all soon. Take care. Awesome. We want to thank Golder once again for coming on the podcast and bringing his insight and experience to the conversation. If anyone has any questions or comments about the podcast, we'd love for you to reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook. We also want to thank Bell Kinney for our beautiful artwork and Cole Stinson for our fantastic music. Thanks again for listening.